one final time into the greatest chapter of the Bible, Romans 8. And I'm going to ask you to do something different today, which is to uh, make sure that you have a copy of God's Word that is in the uh, ESV for the reading now, because um, I've been reading this chapter every week, and you're going to join in this time. So uh, to make sure we can do that in unison, if you don't have an ESV with you, you can use the one in the pew rack, and that is uh, page 945. Romans chapter 8, the breathtaking conclusion of this great chapter today. It is truly breathtaking, so if I have to step away and you hear me coughing, that's why. It's just, it's overwhelming. It is overwhelming. It's a beautiful, beautiful conclusion that I look forward to opening up with you this morning. I'll begin the reading, and then what I'd like you to do is follow along, and I'll have you join in with me at uh, what I think sort of begins uh, the conclusion, um, which would be verse 28. So you can listen for a little bit, and then I'll cue you in, and we will read together from verse 28 through verse 39. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be also glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that 
the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And now as we come to verse 28, we'll join our, ver- uh, our voices together and uh, declare the wonderful promises of the conclusion of this chapter, beginning now in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. You keep your Bibles open and you'll look to verse 35 where we're picking up. Uh, Paul concludes Romans 8 with a series of five challenges to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Sometimes called the preservation of the saints. Which teaches the absolute certainty that all who are justified by faith will arrive at the state of ultimate glorification. And Paul is... Offering up challenges to that doctrine. Is it really true? 
Five questions, five challenges. And he could have stopped at the first one, which is verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That should have settled the matter. And indeed, it does settle the matter. But he very pastorally keeps pressing the issue. He approaches it from different angles. And therefore, he's able to walk us through the gospel's answers to an entire host of doubts and anxieties that plague us about our standing with God. And see what he does with this final question. The final question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And, and before we get too much further, I, I just want, want you to note, Paul's going to talk about this love in two different ways. He calls it the love of Christ in verse 35. In verse 39, though, he says it's the love of God in Christ. The terms are synonymous. So the question is, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gets to the answer and he says, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. So the love of God, the love of Christ, it's the same love. The love he's talking about is the love that God has displayed to us preeminently in the cross of Christ, in the gospel. That's what we're talking about. First John 4, in this, the love of God was made manifest that God sent his son into the world. So love of Christ, love of God, they're used interchangeably here. But this is the question. And this is why he puts it at the end. Five challenges, and he saves us one for the end. Very wise of him to do so, because this is what he's saying. He's anticipating you or me reading through these first four challenges and their answers, and then responding something like this. Well, even if everything you have said so far is true, Paul, even if it's true that God will give me everything I need in Christ Jesus, even if it's true that no one can bring a charge against me that will stick, or no one can condemn me before Almighty God, no, no condemnation can stand, even if it's true that God is for me, Paul, my question is, does God want to be for me? Does he, does he even want me? Or is this sort of like um, a begrudging truth that God concedes to us because of his promises? He's bound by his promise. Or does he actually love me? Does he actually love me? Paul questions the love of God here. Who can separate us from the love of God? And he does that because we so often question the love of God. We play that forlorn roll so well, plucking at the, the flower petals. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Right? One day we feel we're basking in, in all the riches and reassurance of God's love. The next day we wonder, has God even had, had ever once had a good thought about me? We go back and, and, and forth. And what the conclusion of Romans 8 shows us is that although many things will make us or can make us question the love of God, although many things make us question the love of God, we actually conquer through the love of God and we should be confident in the love of God. That's how we're going to work through these verses today. See, seeing the ways we question the love of God, but how Paul's answer is to say, no, even in those things that make you question it, you're actually conquering because of the love of God. And that should make us confident in the love of God. So why do we question the love of God? Well, you look at verse 35. Paul asks, who shall separate us from the love of God? Uh, 
Why is this a question we, we would even ask? Well, uh, fundamentally, it's because of how high the stakes are when it comes to God's love. We know that without God's love, we have nothing. Psalm 63, your love is better than life. There, there is a way to live in which you're not really alive, and that's when you're separated from the love of God. A living life apart from a relationship with God is not living at all. So the stakes are high here. If we feel like God does not love us, we're thrown into an existential panic. Well, why might we feel like God does not love us? Well, look at the text. We call into question God's love because the circumstances in our life confuse us. God says he loves us over and over again. And the gospel promises his love to us. But then we look at the life we live and we think, this doesn't really feel loving. And if God's in control of all these things, he's the one allowing a whole host of trials and troubles to come. And so now I wonder, does he really love me? And Paul lists seven such circumstances that can make us question the love of God in verse 35. Seven, the number seven almost certainly indicating fullness and completeness. That's a, a biblical way of doing things. So we're talking about the totality of troubles. And, and here specifically, Paul mentions things that are external. In the previous verses, he, were ta- he was talking about things internal, you know, like um, the doubts we have. Uh, the the accusa- accusation of the, the devil in our hearts. So um, who shall bring any charge? Who can condemn? You know, that's talking about how the way the devil operates. And that's stuff that, that happens in here and in here. Um, but now we're talking about things that are external. External. Can a Christian who goes through these difficulties be assured that God loves them can they be assured that god loves them or are these not actually signs actually signs that they have lost the love of god in christ well what if we experience tribulation or distress those are the first two that are listed tribulation distress both of these words convey ideas of pressure being confined to a tight space, being pressed in all around. Think of Luke and Leia and Han and, and Chewie, you know, in the, in the trash compactor, the room where the walls are crushing in. That's tribulation. That's distress. Do you ever feel that way in life? Have you ever felt the suffocating pressure of a dead-end job? Maybe a, maybe a, a loveless marriage? Have you felt the demands of work and family and school? What about all those un, unread emails that you need to get back to? What about all the people you need to check in on and, and follow up with? It's that pressure. And Paul lists then persecution. Persecution refers to being pursued by somebody who's intent on our harm. Being chased after. Have you felt the subtle, maybe not so subtle anymore, definitely relentless pursuit of the cultural majority? That's against everything you believe, against everything you stand for, and they're coming after you. They're not content with you uh, uh, just to um, uh, uh, let them have their view. You need to affirm their view. You need to, you need to champion their view. We feel that persecution today in that way. What about famine or nakedness? What's a Christian supposed to think if they experience these things? Did you know or do you remember that Jesus himself addresses these two things in the Sermon on the Mount? He says these are actually signs 
of your father's love, right? He, he clothes the, the lilies and the birds. He gives them what they need. He's going to take care of you. So don't worry about what you'll eat or drink or what you'll wear. Don't worry about famine or nakedness. Okay, well, now if I am experiencing famine or nakedness, does that call into question God's love for me? And finally, Paul mentions physical harm or danger, even to the point of death. Sword mentioned there is the same uh, thing referred to in Romans chapter 13 when he talks about how the government wields the sword. It's, It's talking about execution. So can God possibly love me if I'm led to death for being a Christian? Now look at the text and notice what Paul does with these questions. How does he answer these questions? He goes to the Bible. You see that? Verse 35 are the ways in which we call into question God's love. Verse 36 is Paul's answer to those questions. And verse 36 does not begin, well, in my humble opinion. Verse 36 does not begin, well, to me, I think this. Verse 36 begins, it is written. It is written. So many of our struggles in the Christian life would be lessened if we simply went to the Bible for the answers that we need instead of turning inward to our own feelings, our ever-changing opinions. So if I base um, my perception of God's love to me on how I feel in a particular moment of time, particular situation, I will never have a steady, stable confidence that God loves me. You know, all these questions that Paul says, well, what about persecution? What about danger? What about this? What about that? The only thing I can contribute to those answers is my feelings. I need something outside of that. And so, although all I have is feelings, all the Bible has is fact. It has facts. And so Christians look to the Bible. What does the Bible say about this? We must be people who say it is written. Not, well, to me, I think. It is written. The answer that Paul references is from Psalm 44. And what he means to quote this verse is to say, okay, you have all these questions. Could these bad things actually, these grim circumstances mean that God doesn't love me? And he's saying, look, Psalm 44 is a perfect example that the people of God have always been suffering for God. And that's never once called into question God's love for them. And in this is sort of like a roundabout way of getting to Peter's point in 1 Peter when he says, nothing strange is happening to you, you know, when you suffer. That's, that's nothing new. And Paul does that by quoting an ancient Israelite song. Nothing new is happening here. You know, the, the ancient Israelites, the remnant, uh, they, they, they cried out to God, you know, all the day long. As long as the day is, we suffer for your sake. It's like we're sheep led to the slaughter. And in the case of Psalm 44, what's really interesting is the statement about suffering for God's sake is, is um, framed on either end with statements of trust in God. So it, it begins this way. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. And then after this verse, it says, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So far from questioning God's love... Their suffering makes them appeal to God's love. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. They appeal to God and his love in their distress. One Old Testament scholar says, This awful reality that they feel like they're being led to the slaughter, this awful reality does not cause the Israelite remnant to abandon God 
but to cry out to him. And it's that faithfulness that makes Paul's citation of this in Romans 8 so profoundly appropriate. Israel trusted in God, and they believed in his love even when they suffered. Shouldn't New Covenant Christians such as you and me have even more reason and, uh, to have confidence that suffering can't call into question God's love for us? Let me put it this way. So what? That sounds a little flippant, but just allow it for a minute. So what if you're led to the slaughter like a sheep? So was Christ. That's what Isaiah 53 says. So was Christ. And that didn't call into Christ's mind God's love for him. And it certainly didn't lessen Christ's love for us. On the contrary, the suffering that Christ endured only strengthened the bond between him and us. The more he suffered for us, the more he loved us, if we could have put it that way. And the same is true when we endure suffering for his sake. Friends, he was a sheep slain for you. Are you not willing to be the same for him? Matthew Henry makes this observation. A true Christian loves Christ nevertheless, though he suffer for him, and thinks never the worse of Christ, even though he loses all for him. Let me read that one more time. A true Christian loves Christ nevertheless, though he suffer for him, and thinks never the worse of Christ, though he loses all for him. And then the question is, why? Why is it that a Christian never thinks of him less or thinks of him worse? Henry says, because we never thought that he loved us less when he suffered for us. It's his suffering that underscores his love. And the same should be true for the Christian. If I suffer for him, it's a sign that I love him. Now, you look to verse 37. And Paul says something really profound. Right? He's addressed these various questions we, we have. Right? Can, can God really love me if I go through these things? And he, and he points back to the Bible. But then he does something really profound in verse 37. He says, not only does our suffering not separate us from the love of Christ, it actually makes us conquerors in Christ. There's a transformative power in the love of God, such that what would otherwise crush us is now crushed by us. Isn't that amazing? What would otherwise crush us is now crushed by us. What would otherwise vanquish us now makes us victors. And interestingly, Paul actually doesn't say that we're conquerors, conquerors through these things. He says we are more than conquerors. It's one word in the Greek, likely a word that Paul invented. He, he, did, he liked to do that kind of thing. He takes the word for conqueror, and he, he smashes in front of it the word for above or on top of or, or over. Literally, this could be translated, we are over-overcomers. What does that even mean? How can you... There's, there's nothing better than first place. How can you be more than a conqueror, right? The, the one who is victorious is the victor. There's no position higher or better. What's Paul getting at? What does that mean to be an over-overcomer, a more than conqueror? Well, John Murray, Professor John Murray says, what is stressed here is the superlative of the victory. He's trying to... Paul is... Paul's trying to come up with a term that can capture the kind of victory that belongs to the Christian. So this is the kind of stuff he means. We're more than conquerors because our enemy is more than your average enemy. Right? And we're victorious over Satan and sin and death. Cosmic 
forces of evil. We, who are mere mortals, have taken on and then taken down the prince of the power of the air. He's more than your average enemy, therefore we are more than conquerors. Moreover, our our reward is not an average reward. The crown for the more than conqueror is something that this world can't give. It belongs to the next world. We can hardly even imagine what it's like. Because as creatures of time, everything we accomplish will pass away. No matter how great an earthly victory we might seem in the world's eyes or in our own eyes. And yet, it has to be something outside of this world when heaven and earth will pass away. Great monuments will crumble. Works of art will decay. Fortunes will dissipate. Heroes will die. Even great triumphs of human intellect or emotion will be forgotten. Not so with the more than conqueror. This is why Paul is not content to say the Christian is merely a conqueror. He or she is far more than that. And while we might have, and this is John Murray again, he says, while we may have staggered at the superlative terms in which the victory has been described, he says, here we have the explanation and the validation. It is only through him that loved us. It's the love of Christ revealed at the cross that has transformed us into something we could never be on our own, conquerors, indeed more than conquerors. We are such by virtue of his victory, It's in his conquest that we conquer. It belongs more to him than to us. He shares it with us. It is only ours through him. You know, it was said uh, decades ago that the war to end all wars was the first world war. And obviously now that we call it the first world war, we know they were wrong when they called it the war to end all wars. But they were wrong before the second world war rolled around. Because that, that title, the war to end all wars, had already happened. Thousands of years earlier, outside Jerusalem, in a hill called Golgotha, when Christ Jesus gave out this war cry, it is finished. That was the war to end all wars. And he who won it is the conqueror to end all conquerors. And amazingly, so are we through our faith in him. Thank you, Jesus. By his love shown to us at the cross, Jesus makes us something so much greater than the world can see. We, who above all are most to be pitied, are actually the most powerful. We who invite the scorn and derision of the world will rise on the last day in complete triumph with Satan himself under our feet. Isn't that such the upside-down way of the gospel? God takes the poorest and most most pathetic creatures imaginable. And he says, come all you great and mighty people of the world, you forces of hell, all you demons and you devils, do your worst against these poor and pathetic people and find out actually how strong they are in me. Mount any assault you can, but led by my love, they can only triumph. So we who are like sheep to be slaughtered are in the next breath called more than conquerors. That's the paradox of the Christian life. We're slaughtered sheep. We are over overcomers. How could it be any other way, though, when we are united to our Savior, who if you saw him right now in heaven, you would see him as a lamb slain 
but standing. When we learn how the love of Christ transforms us into being more than conquerors, even in the face of suffering, we can come to no other conclusion than the conclusion reached by the apostle. You see what he says there? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is finally how we are to be confident in the love of God. We need to get to that place that Paul's at in verse 38. I am sure. Now notice what Paul does. He began with, it is written. Now he can move on to, to declare, I am sure. Right? We love to invert that. If, you know, we, we start with, this is how I feel, and then if there's a Bible verse that can supplement it, that's fine. No. Our certainty is based on the word of God. So that's why Paul starts with, it is written, and then he can say, because it's written, I personally am sure of this. Uh, and even that translation is a little weak. It's more like, I am completely persuaded of this fact. I'm convinced of it. You can't tell me otherwise. The word of God has promised it, so Paul believes it, and so must we. This is, this is boys and girls, you know this logic, this idea. If the Bible says it, I believe it. And, and we sing, and I sing to my kids almost every night, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? I don't think I heard any kids answer that. <laughs> Jesus loves me, this I know, for the... That's right, for the Bible tells me so. Right? Our certainty is in the word of God. God says it, we believe it. If the Bible tells me, I believe it. And the Bible says we're more than conquerors in the love of Christ. So I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers. And Paul goes on, right? Because the Bible has promised it. That's the logic of a Christian. The Bible says Jesus loves me. It gives no caveats. So I'm convinced that nothing can separate me from that love. So the Christian who conquers through the love of God, must be confident in the love of God. Convinced that when we have God's love, we have it all. We need to be persuaded that if even our suffering and death can't separate us from Christ's love, and indeed, since it only makes us experience his love more truly and know him more deeply, that nothing else can separate us either. Look at the things that Paul mentions. We'll just go through these briefly. He starts with death. I think he starts with death because that's where he had left off, right? We're being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And he talked about the sword right before that. So he's still in this idea of death. And certainly that's the thing that we're scared of. We're scared of more than anything else. Well, ex except for public speaking, apparently. I don't know if you've seen those studies. But people would, would rather die than have to give their uh, uh, eulogy at a funeral. Um, so we're scared of death. Death can't separate us. From the love of God. Why not? Because it's actually our entrance into the full enjoyment of God's love. Uh, this conviction is what has steeled uh, the, uh, the, the, the nerves of many martyrs in the face of execution. Uh, back in 1685, uh, there's a young girl, 18 years old, Margaret Wilson, who was tied to the stake. The stake was placed in Solway Firth in Scotland. Uh, it's, it's in, the, in the, the ocean there, to be drowned by the rising tide as the waves would come up over her. 
And, and, and as the waves would come in, she's given these opportunities to recant. The reason she was placed there was because she refused to say that, that King Charles was the head of the church. She's saying, no, Christ is the head of the church. I will not say he's the head of the church. And so they put her there, and they're giving her opportunities to recant. But instead, this is what the eyewitnesses said, and historians have recorded this. Instead of recanting, she started reciting Romans 8. And they said, with cheerfulness. With cheerfulness. Until she was welcomed into glory. Death can't separate us. Life can't either. Now that's interesting. You would think Paul would say, neither life nor death. He says, death nor life. Starts with death and then he goes to life. And then we think, well, how could life separate us anyway? What's he getting to here? I think this is, again, Pastor Paul at his best. Because he's recognizing sometimes our sorrows are so heavy that we would gladly welcome death. To be, we would gladly welcome death to, to enter into the presence of God because we feel like this life is actually separating us from him. Maybe you've been there before. But Paul's reminding us that even life, troubling though it can be, can't separate us from Christ's love. And therefore, the Christian has no reason to despair or to become despondent. There's nowhere in life that we can go from God... And since God is love, that means there's nowhere in life that we can go apart from God's love. So life can't separate us. Now beyond our existence in this world, life, and our exit from it, death, Paul examines three other dimensions. He shows even there the love of Christ keeps us. He keeps us in all time. He says things present, things to come. In all space, neither height nor depth. I wonder if he was thinking of Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's the love of God. Defies space. So time, space, and then even things outside of time and space in the spiritual realm. He talks about angels and rulers and powers. New Testament terms for cosmic forces. And just in case you think there's something he doesn't mention, you know, he says, my hand's cramping, so I'm just going to put this. Nothing in all of creation. Nothing else. Nothing else can separate us. So on whatever plane or whatever dimension we wish to examine it, the love of Christ saves us and secures us. And so the question is, are you convinced by it? We can question the love of God, but once we see we're more than conquerors through the love of God, we should be convinced and confident in the love of God. Have you been emboldened by the message of Romans 8 that you can say, no powers of hell nor scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand? We uh, sang another hymn right before the the sermon written by well-known, the late well-known Presbyterian minister, James Montgomery Boyce, a very influential theologian, um, kind of the, the father of the Reformed resurgence in the last few decades, along with people like uh, R.C. Sproul and John Piper. Uh, he wrote this hymn that we sang, Hallelujah, right? Number 516, I think it was, uh, based on Romans 8. And when his congregation in Philadelphia, 10th Presbyterian Church, would sing it, he would stand up on the platform. It's about 10 times as big as this one. And every time they got to the refrain, which, as you notice, Nothing, hallelujah. So 
Each of the five stanzas asks the question, can this separate me? Can this separate me? What can separate me? And the phrase, nothing, hallelujah. Every time at the nothing, he would pound his fist. Nothing like this, hallelujah. And as providence, in God's providence, uh, just a few weeks after writing that hymn, he was diagnosed with uh, cancer of the liver, and he would die uh, a few short weeks later. So we have this man who is up on a platform. What can separate my soul from the God who made me whole? Wrote my name in heaven's scroll. Nothing. Hallelujah. Trouble, hardship, danger, sword. Brought by those who hate my Lord. Slander here. What about no reward? No, nothing. And a few weeks later, he's lying on his deathbed. And he's surrounded by his friends and elders of the church and co-pastors and and colleagues, professors at the Westminster Seminary there in Philadelphia, uh, men like Sinclair Ferguson. And what they would do to comfort him was actually to sing his hymns back to him, to encourage him. And uh, one of the men there told me that even near the end, when he wasn't even strong enough to sing along with them, as they sang this hymn, when they got to the refrain, he would still raise his fist when they sang nothing. And so here we have James Boyce, world-renowned biblical scholar, beloved pastor, influential radio teacher, best-selling author, wasting away on his deathbed. Had death won? No. Because it's only a more-than-conqueror who raises their fist at death and says, do your worst, I have the love of Christ, and nothing can separate me from it. He was giving expression in his final moments to his long-held conviction that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We began with no condemnation. Now we end with its twin doctrine, no separation. These two have to go together. Those who are pardoned will be preserved. Those who are cleansed of their sin will be kept by Jesus. For those whose sins are covered in the blood of Christ, God promises his inseparable presence and he promises you his love. It is a love that stretches larger than space. It is longer than time. It is as big as God himself And it is yours if you are a Christian. Do you have that love today? Are you a Christian today? I can't imagine why you wouldn't want to be. It is the Christian that has a love that will not ever let them go. And God is calling you and he's calling me to live in his love today and every day with all the freedom and the joy and the security and the sanctifying power that it affords. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God of love, and you have shown that love to us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to cling to the promises here and to have the conviction of the apostle. Would we be able to say we are sure that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Lord, we do believe we would be utterly transformed if we could make that declaration today. Give us the faith to do it. We ask in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.